welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today you are in for a treat. I have two excellent, phenomenal colleagues and friends, Drs. Mikhail Sikiris and David Steensma. Both of them had a career transition. One left the Cleveland Clinic and moved to the University of Miami, Sylvester Cancer Center to be the division, the hematology chair or the hematology chief. And another left the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute going to Novartis. So we've asked, I've asked both of these phenomenal physicians to come on the show to better understand what goes in their minds as they are exploring career transition. Why? Why would someone leave one institution to another? How? How does the transition happen? What are the things that you ask for? How does the interview go? How do you do it discreetly? All of these things. But really more importantly, what makes a physician leave one institution to another institution versus changing completely career paths, leaving academic medicine and institution to industry. I think this is really important. This is an important topic for junior faculty, for actually any person in academic medicine, as well as for fellows in training. This is an episode that you should not miss. Doctors Mikael Sikiris and David Steensma on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking medical career transition. Okay, folks, well, uh, this is going to be a treat for you all on Healthcare Unfiltered. I have two wonderful colleagues and, and, and friends who have appeared separately on my podcast, but I was able to, I managed to get them both together on one episode to talk about career transitions and the opportunities that exist out there, uh, outside of the confines of one hospital or one academic center. And um, so uh, uh, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Mikhail uh, Sikiris and Dr. David Steensma on Healthcare Unfiltered. Each one will introduce themselves separately. And then we're gonna talk about variety of medical uh, professions out there for oncologists and physicians overall. And really what led each one of them to change their job into a different job. Mikael, we'll start with you because you are now in sunny Miami, Florida. Uh, so maybe tell listeners who you are. Thank you so much. What a joy it is to be on your podcast again, particularly with one of my besties, David Steensma. Um, I'm Mikhail Sekaris. I'm chief of the Division of Hematology at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of Miami. I've been here now at the time of this podcast for uh, almost nine months, uh, enough that I've got my base tan on. And I have... could tell, I could tell you're definitely tan. <laughs> and yeah, have adequately morphed my wardrobe to be more accommodating to the tropical summers and delightful falls and winters here uh, after spending 18 years in Cleveland prior to this. Yeah, and by the way, when you live in Miami, I don't think you take vacations. Um, David, um, a little bit about you, and uh, you're still in like, uh, I don't know, gray Boston or something? 
<laughs> Still in Boston, which is beautiful right now. But uh, yeah, uh, talk to me in February. Yeah, um, in December of 2020, uh, I moved from Dana-Farber, where I had been at uh, for 11 and a half years. And before that had been on the faculty at Mayo Clinic. So, you know, 18 and a half, 19 years as academic faculty. Um, and I moved to Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, um, which is Novartis's uh, early uh, phase research institute. My title is Global Head of Hematology, and I'm responsible for um, hematology strategy at Novartis, particularly target discovery, early drug development, translating that into to new compounds. Um, and it's been a, a fascinating transition, I have to say, uh, one that I wouldn't have anticipated if you asked me about five years ago. Uh, and I, too, am honored to be on here, uh, not only with our host, but also with my longtime friend, uh, Mikhail, who's, you know, one of the sorts of people with whom you talk about these kinds of transitions uh, for a while before they happen and uh, grateful uh, for his insight and for his friendship over the years. And, and I'll, I'll pipe up for a second, you know, David and I have these weird parallels throughout our lives. We, we were not friends prior to becoming faculty members in hematology and met each other on the talk circuit and discovered that not only do we have very similar parents, uh, our dads even drove the exact same car. Uh, we had the same really truly crummy bike when we were younger. Uh, but we also, our last day at our previous institutions was exactly the same day. And we've gone through, um, you know, we went through the transition together, which was, neat, which was really neat and, and, and really supportive. It was an olive green do Dodge Dart, uh, yes. <laughs> The, the car, not the transition. <laughs> All right. I hope not. Mikhail, I want to apologize. I think I slaughtered your last name. I've known you for a while, and I still, uh, I think it's Securus, not, I said Securus. It's, it's no problem. I remember what the comedian Mae West once said. It doesn't matter what you call me as long as you call. As long as you call. I like that. Okay. So, so, you know, look. I want to get here before we get into your transitions. I want to get into something that always I think it's important. Maybe it's the elephant in the room. And, and you know me, I don't rehearse, nor do I actually tell you what questions I'm going to ask, which I love. But but in fellowship, when you're applying for fellowship, you oftentimes as when you come into from residency and you're applying for a fellowship program, it seems to be an unspoken rule that as a fellow, you always have to tell the program director or the faculty that you're interviewing with that you're going to have a lifelong career in academic medicine and you're going to do research and what's your research interest. And it doesn't matter what program you go to. If you tell them I'm going to do, I'm going to actually, uh, my dream is to be a global head of oncology at Novartis, you probably won't get into that program. If you tell them I'm going to be a community oncologist in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, you probably won't get into that program as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Am I exaggerating here? Keep, keep me straight. Mikhail, you go first. It's a great point, and it's probably true. Uh, to be honest, we recruit to fellowship programs because we like to identify our replacements one day so we can actually retire and enjoy the beaches in Miami. And, you know, part of how 
let me take a step back. I always think when, when applying to positions like this, what, how is the person who's interviewing me evaluated and what are they looking for? And a lot of fellowships are evaluated by how low they go on their rank list. So, you know, if you express a real interest and you've got to be honest about this when applying for fellowship programs and say, you know what, if you choose me, I'm going to come. I think that does help because if they match at number 13, as opposed to number 33, um, they look a lot better. They're also evaluated in some places by how many fellows go on to academic careers. And it's part of how they apply for fellowship funding as well. So I, I, I do think you're right, Chadi. It, 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 it is a, a way to certain fellowships to, to raise your chances of getting in, but you risk giving yourself a fellowship experience that's not going to be good training for eventually what you want to do. So I think there are certain fellowship programs that are much more skilled at training uh, folks who are going to be seeing patients 80, 90% of the time, uh, whether in a community setting or at an academic center. And probably um, those sorts of folks who are looking for something like that shouldn't be interviewing at fellowship programs that are much more hardcore academic and are going to shake their heads in dismay for every fellow who doesn't go into academics. And David, I mean, we know that this is kind of like, I mean, people tell you when you go apply for fellowship, like you guys, there's certain buzzwords you guys say. I mean, we've all been through that, but we know not everybody goes into academia. And I mean, so, so there's like a missing link, no? Yeah, I think it's changed a little bit over time. I think there is uh, recognition that people have different career paths and that, you know, there's... Um, similar value to all of these things, but, but uh, old habits die hard. I also think there's diversity in fellowship programs. I mean, the, the, the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center program, for instance, continues to recruit primarily fellows who are planning academic careers, many combined degrees. They tend to be from a limited number of residency programs. Um, and I don't see that changing just because it's the mission of the institution. On the other hand, I was at Mayo Clinic and there was always a recognition that part of the fellowship was to train excellent uh, clinical hemonc doctors and that a certain proportion were going to go out in the community and see patients and hopefully refer some of them to Mayo Clinic, but always be good representatives. And so when I started um, fellowship, historically about half of the people who trained there had uh, gone into practice, about half had stayed in academic roles. And of those half, uh, slightly more than half had stayed at Mayo Clinic of the ones that stayed in a academic center. Um, that being said, I, one year when I was um, involved with a fellowship, uh, all of the fellows went into private practice and uh, the, all the graduating fellows. And it was actually a big year. There were, I think, eight or nine fellows that year. And there was a lot of hand wringing, not because of the individual choices that these folks had made, which was correct choice for each of them or made sense for each of them. But collectively, the fellowship said, are, are we doing something wrong? Are we making, you know, we want to be a good clinical training program, but are, are we making uh, academia somehow too difficult? And, you know, it's settled back down towards the historic mean again. But um, I, I think you're, I think there is recognition of diversity of pathways now in a, a way that perhaps there was less so 20 years ago. 
And, and if I, I could build on that really quickly, I, I, I like how you said that, David. You know, if, if you're interviewing, if, if, if you're a fellowship applicant and you're interviewing for a fellowship program and you, your heart is really in providing clinical care to patients, I think that's wonderful. Uh, there is huge value to that. Think about what it is that you can bring to the fellowship program that's going to make them proud to say that you graduated from them. So at, um, at Sylvester and, and University of Miami, we recruit a lot of fellows who are international graduates, particularly from South America. And we take a lot of pride in those fellows who do go into academics and also those fellows who may go back to South America and become a leading physician there. So I would encourage applicants to think, you know, what is it that you can bring to a fellowship program in providing clinical care that's going to be really special and something that they're going to take pride in uh, when you do graduate. But in Miami, they have to be able to surf, right? Well, we are, it is, we are, <laughs> we are called the most organized city in, in South America here in Miami. So yeah, <laughs> that is <laughs> something we take pride in. If you have, if you're applying to Miami under your extracurricular activities, you have to. <laughs> so um, so I, now I want to go a little bit into more detail. So, so Mikhail, you, you did your fellowship where? Uh, I did it at Dana-Farber. And then, and then the first job you took was at the Cleveland Clinic. Correct. And you were there for 18 years. Correct. So I'm sure, I'm sure, 100% certain, during those 18 years, you did get opportunities to leave Cleveland Clinic. Folks were recruiting you and so on. You know, we all have had these opportunities. It wasn't the first time you were being recruited elsewhere. What was right. so different now compared to other opportunities you've had when you were transitioning from one institution to another? So it's a super question. Um, there, there are a lot of job opportunities, no matter what your specialty uh, around the US and around the world. So everyone who is a faculty member in good standing somewhere is gonna be recruited at some point. And I've always counseled fellows and junior trainees that you should run towards an opportunity and not away from a situation that may not be the best situation. So for me, having been in, in Cleveland for 18 years, I tried to take a step back every five years and assess where I was, what I was accomplishing, and whether there might be an opportunity somewhere else where I could accomplish that even better. And I really encourage people to have that moment of self-reflection. And it may take a few minutes, it may take an hour, it may take a weekend to take that step back. And also to find friends and colleagues you trust to have those conversations. Um, and you, you heard David say it before, we became very good friends probably about 15 years ago and very quickly identified each other as a, as a trusted counsel uh, as we went through these machinations about, am I, am I happy where I am? Um, does my day-to-day -day life bring me joy? I, I know that's an overused phrase, but I really believe in it. And um, where do I see myself as the next step? And can I accomplish that where I am or do I need to go somewhere else? So I did that every five years. And after five years at Cleveland Clinic, I, I looked around, looked over the fence, uh, found that the grass wasn't greener anywhere else and wanted to keep going with what I was doing. I, I found my job very fulfilling. And the same was true at 10 years. 
At 15 years, I started to wonder whether Cleveland was really the best place for me to move forward. And that was about a mid-career point for me. So I just kept my ears open. I didn't jump at every opportunity. And, you know, I, I did something that I'm, I'm really happy that I did in reflection. I sat down with my wife and we had a, a figurative map of the United States. We decided we wanted to stay in the United States. And we thought to ourselves, okay, if we're going to make another move, where do we want to live? Like, let's kind of be proactive about it and think it through. And we circled areas of the country where we, we would want to live. And for family reasons, um, that was um, the eastern part of the United States. Um, we did decide that we didn't want to move to a place that was colder. And I know that sounds really superficial, uh, but after you've lived in an area that has gray skies for the, the majority, if not all of your career, um, sometimes, it, sometimes that wears on you. So um, we, we circled areas on the map where we wanted to live. Then we circled areas where I felt that there were growing, thriving, functional cancer centers. And this is totally biased, my opinion, based on maybe speaking to one person at a cancer center, um, looking online, seeing where it seems like places were growing and recruiting and doing really fun things. And then we, the overlap of those Venn diagrams for me uh, boiled down to about three places. So I um, started to make inquiries and to kind of to stick my toe in the water, which I really hadn't done before. And um, it turns out that fortunately, um, one of those places was University of Miami and they were looking for a chief of hematology. So you were more proactive at, at the 15 year mark. Can I, uh, before I go to David, can you comment just a little bit on, you said you, I, I'm intrigued by that, um, uh, metaphor. You're a writer, so you have very nice metaphors. Uh, you looked over the fence and you realized the grass was not always greener. What were you looking at when you say the grass wasn't greener? If there is a junior faculty or a fellow listening to this, what, what are they looking at to make a decision about greener gra grass versus not so green? You're very good at this, Chadi, because you're pushing me to be more concrete about um, what my motivators were and, and or or dis or dissatisfiers. Um, what I was looking for at five years was um, can I grow to the next step? For me, the next the next step at that point was looking to become head of a disease program, in my case, a leukemia program. Um, was I able to conduct the clinical research that I wanted to? I'm a clinical investigator. Uh, where I was in Cleveland, was I being given support to do that? Meaning for me, that was support in terms of statistical support, uh, research coordinators, um, ability to run investigator initiated trials in uh, IND health studies, multi-institution studies. Um, did I have good collaborators uh, who supported my work and whose work I could support? Um, and was I being successful at publishing in what I felt were impactful places and changing the field. So I felt at five years, I was able to do all of that and do it. Um, I thought pretty well. And I used comparing myself to where uh, colleagues with whom I graduated were performing. And it looked as though I was doing, I was, I, I was um, publishing at a, about the same rate uh, if, if not a little more as they were. And, and I had some opportunities that I, that I felt were really special. 
So at 10 years, I think at that point, you're looking to do, to lead a program and then to start to do other things. And in, in my situation, I was really interested in clinical research and became vice chair for clinical research at Cleveland Clinic uh, for the Cancer Center, uh, which is a large clinical trials operation. I was able to continue to grow within my current role. At 15 years, I looked over the fence and looked back on my side of the fence and felt as if I had tapped out with potential leadership positions. And somebody who was in a, a very high role in Cleveland um, made a comment to me during the 15 to 18 year period. And the comment was, you know, in Cleveland, um, we have people who are very successful in research and become internationally famous and, you know, are widely published. And that's really great for them. And we want them to keep doing what they're doing. And then we have the people we groom for leadership positions. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a real distinction. And that's a message to me. So, you know, it, I started this by saying, uh, I always advise fellows and junior faculty to run towards an opportunity. And in the end, that's what I did, but there's a push to it also. Yeah, and for me, the push and pull, right? The push and pull. It's a tension. It's a real tension. You don't want the push to dominate, but there's a push. And for me, I felt like um, I had reached essentially a glass ceiling and where I could go next and how I wanted to develop my career. David, you have a different story. You're, 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 you're a hardcore academician. Uh, I, you know I'm a big fan. I, I, You've you done a lot of work as well, similar to Mikhail in the same field, uh, you know, myeloid malignancies and so on. But you took on a different path um, going to industry. Take us through the process uh, similar to what Mikhail did. Yeah, I had moved once before in 2009. Um, and uh, that was from Mayo Clinic to Dana Farber, and partly it was because I, you know, I really wanted to do uh, research in a way that I that I wasn't able to or didn't feel I was able to at Mayo. I, I loved Mayo and have and continue to have many good friends there, but um, this opportunity came along. So I had already sort of moved once, and I would say that I I didn't have this sort of. Um, periodic assessments that Mikhail had, but I was always thinking about, you know, uh, what is the impact of what I'm doing? Where do I want to be next? And by and large, you know, while I was at Dana-Farber, things had evolved in really good ways. I was, you know, seeing the kinds of patients I really enjoyed. I had a good balance of clinical and, and um, academic time, although, you know, it's it's an intense place, so so other people might might find that uh, that balance uh, uh, not as pleasant, but but I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I had good funding. Um, you know, when I made the transition, it was you know it was eight figures in grants and things. I had an endowed uh, chair. I was chair of myself basically, but nonetheless an endowed position. Um, but I, I really started thinking about, um, you know, what's the next stage? Um, you know, what, what would allow me to have the most sort of impact on, on patients? Um, and so started thinking actually very similar to, to what Mikhail um, was, was doing. And I had uh, gone pretty deep into the process of interviewing for a hematology chair position at a, at a center. And I, I won't say where it was, but um, I'm sure that would have been a, a terrific opportunity. Um, and then I, I got a call 
from Jay Bradner from Novartis, uh, who had been at Dana-Farber, who I'd overlapped with, a really impressive guy. And, um, you know, he said, we really need somebody for the company to, to help with our hematology strategy. And initially, I, I kind of said, no, I hadn't thought much of myself in industry. And, you know, one, one thing led to another. There were I will say there were there were personal family reasons for staying uh, where I am as well that that also played into decision as the decision as well so uh, so that was a factor for me too but it was largely about what sort of influence did I did I want to to have and I felt like this would be a role that would allow me to affect patients on a on a different scale. I'll say two other things quickly. One is that the pandemic, I think, and the change in our work environment um, made a lot of us reflect and think about what's the next stage for our careers, what's the next stage for our lives, maybe made some people less tolerant of things that were in their work life that um, that that they just, you know, d- 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 thought could be different. Um you know, I, I just, I really got fed up with the EMR, for instance. I was really, you know, epic. It was just killing me. Um, and so I think there was there was some of that as well, uh, just a general restlessness. I think we've seen a lot of turnover and, and uh, uh, positions and people, you know, thinking about what they want the next stage of their career to be. I also felt like, um, I had accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish in academia. And, you know, I'd, I'd published a lot of papers, you know, not as impactful some of them as maybe, you know, I would have wanted, but, you know, I'd, I'd published a lot. I'd been on the plenary stage at ASH, um, you know, had, had uh, set up a new clinic. I'd started a new course um, at, at Harvard Med School. Um, and so thinking about the, the next step um, left me in a position where I was willing to consider industry where you really have to take a step back and um, it's, it's, not, it's not about your ego. Uh, you know, there's a certain ego in academia where you know, you're the one who's going to be giving the talks and writing the papers and being the expert. And industry is different. There are big egos in industry, but you have to be willing, I think, to say, I don't need to be on the stage anymore. I'm, you know, willing to to let other other people uh, do that, and I think that's true of leadership as as well. And and you know, I'm sure Mikhail is is like this. I'd love to work in a department run by him. Um, there's a certain sort of servant leadership where the person who's the chair is focused on how do I develop the careers of younger faculty, younger investigators. How do I build this program in a way that um, uh, is is going to be good for the program, not necessarily for, for always for me personally. And uh, leaders like that are worth their weight in gold, um, you know, and can, can really, I think, have, a, have an influence. So, um, so, yeah, that is a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, Chadi, but um, those how, were how some long, of my thoughts. How long, how long were you in Mayo before you went to the Dana Farber? Depends if you count training or not. So I started as an intern there in 1996, and I left in 2009. In 2002, I finished fellowship. Um, I went away to the UK for two years, but still very connected with Mayo. It was a scholarship that Mayo had, and then came back in 2004. 
So thir 13 and a half years in Rochester. You certainly did not acquire the UK accent. So <laughs> the children did briefly, briefly. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> can I ask, can I ask David a quick question? Yeah, please. David, you have accomplished, so David is always very modest. This is a testimony to his training in the Midwest. Uh, and so it, it's up to the rest of us to, to build him up a little bit. <laughs> so David, you have accomplished in your publications and your funding and the transformative research and analysis that you've done in your career, the equivalent of four or five full professors. I mean, to be, let's, let's just be <laughs> I, honest. I, I, okay? I, I yeah. totally agree. And, and one of the things that, that makes David so special, honestly, to your point, Mikhail, He's truly very humble about it. Like you wouldn't even, I mean, go ahead. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. So, so it's up to you and me, Chadi, to build them up. And um, I mean, not, not full professors at Harvard. You're not quite there yet, buddy. But anywhere else, it's, <laughs> it's four or five full professors, right? Or even at Harvard. I mean, it's, you know, there's a glass ceiling at Harvard also for clinical researchers. It's very hard to be a full professor there um, if, if you do clinical research. Do you think that it happened too fast and furiously, and maybe that's why you're ready for a career transition mid-career? Do you think if you had done it slower and taken more time, you'd still be doing this in your, your 60s? I don't know. I mean, uh, first of all, it's very, it's very kind of you. Um, untrue, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of you, yeah. And the irony is I left Mayo just as I had cleared the first um, promotion thing for professor in 2008. And in Harvard, finally, the process started in 2020. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, anyway, it, you know, it's all epaulets, as uh, Dick Feynman said, it's, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big deal for me. Um, I, I think uh, one of the big things that this new lifestyle has opened my eyes to is that you know, there there is the possibility of working less than a hundred hours a week. <laughs> and uh, don't, don't give don't give the pearls yet. We're gonna get to that. <laughs> Hold on. I mean, it's Mikhail. You and I have talked about this a little bit. It's uh, it's insane what what we do in academia sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna, you know, the self-inflicted. Yeah. So so Mikhail. All right, I won't steal. Yeah, that. yeah. Don't <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Uh, but no, Mikhail. Um, because I think this is really important. I, I'm just thinking, if I'm listening to the show, what are the things I want to really learn from these two guys? So I'll start with you, Mikhail. You, you dabbled, you figured out there may be some opportunities. What, what do you do then? There are two possibilities. Either you find an opportunity that you may like. Do you email? Do you inquire through third other people? Um, and, then, and then what... You know, what do you, when you go into interview, for both of you, you're going to comment on this because it's really important. How do you do that discreetly? Or do you even do it discreetly? I mean, I know some people interview so they can leverage, hey, I'm going to let them know I'm interviewing because I need to get a bonus or I need to get some resources. I want to get a promotion. Like, I know, T take me through all of this. This is so important for a listener because now let's say you have an interview. You're going to fly into Miami and give a talk and give an interview. How, a, how do you do it discreetly or do you? Number two, what kind of questions do you ask? What are the things that people who are interviewing for this job need to know? Because you don't want to go to a place where you really 
don't get what you want. So what do you ask for? Yeah, great questions. And I think it's entirely dependent on what stage of your career you are. So coming out of fellowship, you need to let everyone know that you're interviewing for different positions. Um, because no, seriously, because you're going to need the support of the folks at home. And even if the folks at home are offering you a position, it's always important to interview at other places and make sure that it really is the right fit for you. And if folks at home aren't supportive of your doing that, I think you've got to rethink whether you should be staying at home. So when you're, you know, a few years later, um, it, you do have to be discreet and it's incredibly awkward. So first of all, I am not a fan of going to interview places to get a better offer at home. I think it's disingenuous. You know, to put it plainly, it's, it's rude and disrespectful. And it's rude and disrespectful both to the people at home and to the people who are spending so much time uh, to interview you and to um, try to assess whether you're a good fit for them also. And in doing that, you're always going to sow some bitter seeds um, and just be aware of that. And you may talk to people at home who say, oh no, you gotta do this to get like more money at home to negotiate. Okay, that's fine, but you've just essentially tried to blackmail the people at home and you've really annoyed a lot of people at the institution where you were interviewing who were taking your candidacy seriously. So eventually it's gonna bite you in the butt. For um, those of us who are serious about looking other places, um, I, I think you do have to be discreet and um, uh, let the people with whom you're interviewing know that you're not public yet in your intentions of looking elsewhere. Um, that also is gonna impact the letters of reference that you're gonna provide. So there are some people you're going to have to trust with the fact that you're interviewing elsewhere. And that's why it's so critical to identify those people, let them know and ask them to be discreet so that if they are asked for a letter, um, it, it won't be a surprise and they won't feel the need to gossip about it to somebody, to be just completely blunt. Although I'm not a big fan of letters of recommendation, I could always find somebody who speaks greatly about me. That's like, you know, I, I never understood that. I'm like, you know, you're never going to ask somebody who you can't stand to write you a letter, but that's a different, that's a different type. But let me ask you this. What if something leaks? So, you know, you try to be discreet. I mean, you know, the, our world is pretty small and, you know, something leaks and so on. And then, your cancer center director or your boss, hey, like, hey, Mikhail, I heard you're doing this. Is this, do you come clean? Do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, and, and eventually, Chadi, it's a very small community and it will leak. Yeah. Um, and it did get out a little bit about me before I had signed a contract. So I had to navigate that. And it's a very awkward uh, position from the time you've said, yes, I want to join a new institution to the time you've signed that contract and become public with it at your own institution. If that happens, then my response, this didn't, I, I was not confronted with this by a, by a boss. If it had, I, I was prepared with my answer though, if it did happen. And that is, um, yes, I'm looking around. I think it's important for my own growth to assess whether my continuing at a place like Cleveland is really the right decision for me, or if you know, my needs and your needs would be served with me being, uh, me being elsewhere. I'm, if I do make that decision, I was fully intending to tell you um, once I had signed a contract, it's way too premature at the stages of my looking around to consider this something that's uh, solid. So that, that way you're, you're being respectful to everybody. 
you're saying, I don't want to throw yeah. this at you. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a bargaining chip. It's not something that's a done deal. I was intending to tell you when it is a done deal, we're just not there yet. I'm going to go later on after I hear from David into what are the things that you would want from the new employer that uh, as you're negotiating a contract and so on. But David, back to you now, you, you are obviously, you know, it's a different scenario, although it's the same issue. A, you know, you're basically interviewing with the dark side now, you know, I mean, shame on you. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know how the, the philosophy, I mean, I don't believe in the dark side. I believe it's always gray side. I always laugh at my, yeah. my colleagues when they say that, but, but take us also through that. I mean, how do you do it discreetly? Do you, were you ever thinking I'm going to do this to leverage my current opportunity, uh, at Harvard? Maybe I could actually get better deal, better funding, more money, faster promotion, Wh whatever it is, uh, take us through your process. Yeah, I, I've like Mikhail, I've never been a fan of uh, interviewing solely to feather your nest back home. I think that's a it's a dangerous game to play and it is it is disrespectful. You know, if, if there are issues at home, uh, you know, it's best to discuss them with with the people involved or, or with with your chair. And and, you know, sometimes things get fixed um, and sometimes they're just unfixable. And then you have to decide, you know, whether it's it's uh, a big enough problem that you really do need to go look elsewhere with the intent of actually probably going elsewhere. Um, so I agree. I've, I've never been a, a fan of that. I think there is, um, there are a large number of people in recent years, um, people I respect a lot actually, who've gone to industry. And so I think some of the things that might have been stigmatizing 20 years ago, I think it's it's changed. There are also people who come back. There are plenty of people who've gone to industry and then have come back or have gone into a, a different role. You know, I think of like Peter Marks, uh, who's at FDA now. You know, he was he was at the Brigham, then he went to to Yale and Novartis. I'm not sure in which order. I don't remember. I think um, and now he's now he's at FDA. So you know, somebody who's done industry, uh, you know, academia, and now in a, a very important regulatory role as the the FDA's vaccine person. So um, yeah, I I think that. Uh, I, you know, I hadn't I hadn't started my career thinking, oh, I want to go into into industry. Um, it wasn't even really presented as an option, to be honest. Um, I think that's one of the things that we do the fellows a little bit of a disservice not to fully discuss what the options are, you know, and let them think that somehow, you know, it's either you're at the bench or you're a clinical trialist, which when I was starting out, that was a new thing, or or you're out in community practice. And, and there's lots of different roles, uh, career paths people can take in government or regulatory or, you know, different types of industry or, you know, uh, different types of academic clinical hybrids. So lots of different pathways. I think we, we do a disservice by not presenting all of them as, uh, as educators to our to our fellows. David, one of the things that we often do, at least maybe I, I, I do, whenever there's a new opportunity, whatever that opportunity is, or like a major decision, there's a sounding board, I call it. There's like, you know, these trusted colleagues who yeah. know, you absolutely know that they really want, you, you know, basically you trust and you know they're not going to steer you wrong. And that could be one person, they could be five people, 
and I'm not talking about your family, your wife, and so on. I'm talking about the outside world. Did you have that sounding board, if you will? And I presume Mikael is one of them. Did you call and say, am I crazy? Tell me how many people did you call? Uh, you don't tell us the names, but yeah. the process because you want to make sure. And, and the same question, Mikael, to you after David answers. Yeah, definitely. You know, and one of the people I trust most and, and who I discussed it with is in one of the other boxes on the screen here, uh, Mikhail, and uh, very much valued his perspective. And in many ways, our careers have, have evolved in slightly different ways, but in, in parallel. And so he's a, certainly a, a close friend that I could trust uh, with, with, you know, truly being honest and know that it wasn't going to get to the, the wrong people, so to speak. I did also, I had some people internally at Dana-Farber that I talked with, um, you know, uh, people whom I, I'd learned uh, to, that I could trust. Uh, you know, one of them actually was the leukemia chair, Dan D'Angelo. And, and uh, you know, Dan is a, is a good friend. Um, you know, he's also the head of the leukemia group. So it was a little bit of you know, awkwardness around the possibility that if I did take one of these jobs, he'd have to find somebody, but uh, somebody, a successor, but he was somebody I trusted enough to, to, to be actually be able to talk about that with. And I think he could separate himself enough to be able to give uh, honest thoughts about that. So yeah, I did have a small circle. Were you looking at various industry jobs or industry versus academia? Like were, were there several opportunities industry was one of them? Yeah, for me, it was really, I was uh, looking at two separate positions. One was a traditional academic chair position and uh, initially thought that I would take that if that, if that worked out. And then, the, and then this, the job I'm at now became the other, the other option. I hadn't really thought about industry very much before. I had gotten lots of offers over the years, um, as, as I'm sure, you know, Mikhail, people approached you as well. Um, there was a position I looked at seriously about three years ago um, and ended up not uh, taking that. Just wasn't the right time. Mikhail, how about you? Did you have a small circle that you, you called and, and like how... how it's sometimes it's really hard, right? Because they may not always, they don't know all of the detail uh, of you're the one who went through the interview. I mean, no matter how much you try to describe, they're, they're limited. But um, how many people did you call? Did you ask? And did you talk to anyone internally that you trusted like David did? It's a great question. Um, so I, as David and I did talk through this, this process. David, it, it, like I've said all along, he's one of my besties. I trust him. He knows where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not going there. <laughs> um, I would trust David with, with anything, any kind of information. He, he knows how my career has evolved. He knows the, you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, thrill of victories and the agonies of defeat that I've gone, uh, undergone at every stage. Um, we're each other's um, own little intimate uh, therapy group. So, and we've collaborated together as well. We've, so, so I, we actually did take a couple of times where this was, 
you know, pre everyone doing Zoom, we actually, you know, picked up a phone and called each other, which was, you know, really oh weird. Oh my God, you're yeah. talking the phone, not texting. It turns out you've got to dial one first and then the number. <laughs> and a nine if you're at work. <laughs> and a nine to get out of it. <laughs> I don't know. That's crazy. We, we, so we picked up the phone a couple of times when, you know, we'd send each other emails about whatever was going on and each of us can sense when the other is not feeling so great about something. And we reached out to see what was going on. Um, so we did that. There were a couple of internal people I talked to as well. It was a little bit tricky because as head of a program looking around, you know, the people I recruited um, to Cleveland are wonderful, lovely people who are very, very deep friends and close colleagues. And I had to be careful because I didn't want to let them down. And I knew that it, it may throw some uncertainty into their lives. Um, I'm very good friends with Hetty Caraway, who wound up taking over for me in the leukemia program. And she knew I was looking very good friends with Nate Pinnell from who's a lung cancer doctor, but, you know, at one point was my son's little league coach. So he and I are very close outside of work. Um, let him know that I was looking. And then outside of work, people like Allison Lauren, who heads up Transplanet Penn, is a very dear colleague I've met through Ash and a very dear friend. Um, Joe McHale as well, uh, who was at Mayo, Arizona. And he was going through a similar transition, very, you know, kind of the same time as me. So yeah, there were, there were a, a cabal of people who... Um, with whom I trusted and I knew wouldn't talk about it and would give me honest, straightforward advice, would call me crazy if they thought I was crazy and would be supportive if not. David, one of the most common reasons people outside of industry think that folks go into industry because A, it's way less work, B, it's better work-life balance, C, there is no burnout and so on. I guess how much of the work-life balance, the burnout, or I don't know, whatever it is, uh, played a factor in your transition into industry. And do you really believe that folks in industry don't work as hard? Because I don't believe that. I'm like working my butt off. Yeah, no, I don't think it's, uh, there's a, a big difference in the, the sort of amount of work. Uh, maybe the intensity is a little different. Um, you know, uh, there was a year in which um, I lost uh, 40, just over 40 patients. That was 40 people with whom I had, you know, tough end of life conversations with their families. And that's what happens when you're, you know, in a very busy, you know, leukemia practice and the median survival is only a few months because people tend to come to you late and, you know, it, it but it, it um, uh, that type of emotional intensity, that's, that's not there anymore. Um, and the one thing I would say people in industry complain about um, is the travel. And at least for the moment, that's on hiatus, uh, you know, so, um, but as far as the, the amount of work, I mean, I'm still, you know, writing things and reading papers in the evenings. And, you know, it's, it's just that you have a little bit more control over your schedule and the, the emotion uh, uh, is, is perhaps a little less. I think people make this transition for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, some, some people, uh, 
it is about uh, work-life balance, whatever that means, or, um, you know, for some people it's financial there, you know, um, we also, we put up with a lot of baloney and, and, and academia. I mean, a lot of crap that um, gets put on the physician sometimes, uh, you know, cause there's nobody else to do it or because the institution hasn't thought through who, who should be doing things. And I think in industry, there's so much analysis of, of the bottom line that, you know, it, I'm not the one filling out these forms that I had to fill out before that somebody else could have done. So I think there is a little bit of that. For, for me, the, the biggest motivator was really being able to do something at a different scale and in a different way and, and a new adventure in a way. I, I was... I won't say I was bored, absolutely not, but I was ready to try something something different. And I had always been kind of intrigued by early drug development, by you know how does something move from being a molecule to a phase one trial, and that's the core of what I I do. It's different, you know. People have said, is it like an extended advisory board? And it's there's some aspects of that, but this is really my particular job is really focused on quite early drug development, and so it is a little bit different. Mikael, um, was b burnout, life-work balance when you were looking at the job at Miami and were you thinking, am I going to work less? Uh, is it burnout? Is it, I don't know, what, what, what are the factors you were looking at um, pertaining to that role? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, I, I want to credit a couple of people who are my close colleagues in Cleveland with whom I would have conversations about this aspect of our lives all the time. One is uh, Navneet Majel, uh, who also just announced that he's leaving Cleveland to join Sarah Cannon in a leadership position. He and I met monthly to make sure that his transplant program, my leukemia program, were talking with each other and making uh, organizational structural uh, adjustments to make sure patient transitions were smooth. So he, he and I became very, very close over the years that we worked together in Cleveland and would talk about these work-life balances. Another person with whom I credit my approach to work-life balance is Tim Gilligan, um, who's just a lovely, lovely guy. He and I trained together in fellowship and then I had the pleasure of helping to recruit him to Cleveland. And he's the one who taught me as the son of a psychiatrist and a world famous feminist to take a step back and do a career assessment and a life assessment and categorize what brings you joy and what doesn't, and then adjust your life more towards the things that bring you joy. And it's so easy to just follow the path you've created for yourself, not looking up, doing the same things you've always done because they're comfortable. It's much harder to take that step back and realize that we are, we do control our own destiny and can make those adjustments when we need to. So for me, what I realized brought me joy was um, I love to mentor people. I love to build other people's careers. I love building programs and seeing those take off and being an idea person. Um, and what I found at Miami was a place that was taking off, growing in leaps and bounds, outpacing even the growth of South Florida, of the population in South Florida, um, having uh, regained the NCI designation. And you see which people are going towards an institution. And I saw these really smart, well-known people in the prime of their careers going to Sylvester and to the University of Miami, people like Ola Landgren in myeloma and Craig Moskowitz in lymphoma, 
Um, Jerry Soft just joined us for general hematology. And I thought, wow, this is a great group. And they're seeing the same thing that I am. For me, I will tell you, I'm a big believer in the Malcolm Gladwell blink moment, right? And, and we can dismiss it as pop psyche. But I really believe that, that we go to a place, we get a gut feeling about it. We know the right decision. We know we want to be there. And then we spend hours, days, weeks, months, or even years trying to justify it logically. But all along, <laughs> we knew the right decision. Right. So um, I went to Miami and I had that blink moment. Um, I, I always tell people I had 30 interviews in two days and there, was, there were no cracks in the veneer. Um, it was a really... How many times do you go back and forth? Uh, was it like a one-time, two-days interviews, or do you have to go back again? Uh -huh. Well, this was just as COVID was breaking. So it was, co it was February of 2020 when I interviewed. Then COVID hit. There was no travel, but we all wanted to keep the ball rolling. So it, a lot of it then at that point was virtual. Um, I was asked for just the nuts and bolts of it is, when I felt like it was a great fit, they felt like it was a great fit. They asked me for a uh, thousand word uh, opinion on the division and what I thought they had and what I thought they needed. I did, I, I wrote that with consulting with a lot of people who were at Miami. So when you interview at a position, don't be afraid to reach out to folks who will wind up being your friends and advisors for, for a new position and what to ask for and what's needed at a place. This is their opportunity to fill in the gaps that they they felt have, have been there for a while. So I put that together. We all felt it was a good fit. And I went through another round of interviews and talked to a lot of people. And then it came time where we were going back and forth with a draft offer letter. And I had to bite the bullet as did my family and, and make a trip down to Miami so that my family could see whether or not they could live there. In terms of negotiating and, and so on, do you consult with colleagues, lawyers? Like, do you, or do you, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's always this, like, you always have to negotiate up whatever it is that they're offering you. They could be offering you X dollars, X resources. The take-home message, always try to get more. Is that the philosophy that you went into this? It, it depends, Chadi. I think I'm more of the type who's very honest and open about what my um, what my wants are and what I think. You're. Let me start over. I'm sorry. With uh, when I was looking to be chief of a division, it's in everyone's interest that the division be world class. So the way I positioned my requests were: if we want to have a world class hematology division, this is what it's going to take to get there. Are you willing to do it? And so the draft offer letter reflected what I had already asked for. So there's not a lot of, it's not like they send you an offer letter and you're completely blindsided by it. You have no idea what's coming. We, we've already discussed that stuff. So the draft offer letter essentially reflected 90% of what I had asked for anyway. So there wasn't a lot to negotiate. And at that point, if you then say, oh, and by the way, I want this huge thing also, then once again, you're being disingenuous. Yeah. And disrespect. That, that's a good point. I mean, as long as it reflects what you already talked about, David, it's a different scenario with you because it's, I mean, it's both corporate, but just a different corporate structure. And how do you, like, what type of questions do you ask in a role like this? And by the time you get the offer letter, is it the same? Everything is reflected already and it's just about like signing and, and moving on? 
It is also a dialogue, and there's a discussion about roles and responsibilities, and about um, you know levels of support and budgets and things like that. So um, there is there is some overlap. I think um, one of the differences comes in does a position already exist or not uh, because if a if you're coming into an existing position it's a little different than if you're creating a, a new position um, uh, it also moves more quickly uh, on both ends uh, you know people tend to get hired more quickly in industry and uh, they move on more quickly as well already uh, in the eight or nine months that I've been at Novartis, there have been a number of people who've left. Uh, it's just part of the turnover. Novartis is actually fairly low in terms of the proportion of turnover from the standpoint of industry, but it happens all the time. People, you know, their priorities change or they get different offers or, you know, they um, something something changes. They, they go to start their own company, whatever, but it tends to be like, two or three weeks and they're gone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and academia, especially for those of us who see patients, it's, you know, it's generally a many months sort of a process. But, but you're also working for a global company in a global role. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe like, I don't know, maybe it's 50,000 employees. I actually have no idea how many employees, but in the thousands, right? It's different than right. Farber or Mayo and, and so on. And you know how it is, like one of those things where, it's clearly you don't control cost of drugs and cost of therapy and everything that people talk about in oncology. You know, I think it's one of those things that you have to balance the academic medicine versus right now you're working for a different company. Do you, do you struggle in finding the happy medium with your colleagues that you once were on the other side? I think you're, yes, you, you have to realize, particularly in a very big company, and you're right, Novartis has over 100,000 employees globally, uh, you know, and it's a several hundred billion dollar company. You're a small cog in a very big machine. And so, you know, what you do matters, but you also have, you know, some, some limited uh, influence, um, particularly with me, because I'm focused on early drug development, you know, the, the sort of commercial approved product, that sort of thing, you know, my role there is quite limited. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. Um, you, you know, everybody has a, a niche or a, a role to play. So, yeah, I think for some people that's, that's difficult. Um, you know, you, you come from an academic uh, mindset where um, it's, it tends to be a smaller group. You may have a, a larger voice and um, sort of, you know, not needing to have your belly rubbed uh, is, is part of what, uh, what you need to do when you go to industry. It's also, I think, different in a big company like, a, you know, Novartis, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Roche, you know, these, these huge companies than if you were going to a Kendall Square Biotech with 30 employees and you're the chief medical officer, you know, then uh, you, you have a different role um, and a, a much larger role perhaps within that company, but you might have one or two drugs, whereas, you know, I'm involved in dozens of different programs, everything from CAR T to gene therapy. So uh, that, that's different as well. So I have two questions left, and I promise I'll let you go. We're taping on a Sunday evening. So, Mikhail, I start with you. Number one is, what's your, what's your day? What does your day look like? Like, take us through a day in the life of Mikhail. 
Um, my day is varied, uh, and that's by design. You can so... skip the beach, by the way. You can skip the beach part. <laughs> <laughs> well, first day I change out of my bathing suit, then I can. <laughs> After a late night in one of the clubs in South Beach, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, my commute is worse than it was in Cleveland, um, but it does soften it a little bit that I do go by palm trees every single day. You know, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in Miami. I, we, we, were, we were chatting before we started recording. My 12-year-old said to me today, I still can't believe we're not on vacation because we used to always vacation in Florida. So <laughs> we we work here. We work really hard too. Um, I go into work. I have uh, a full clinic day uh, in the Sylvester outpatient setting. I have to you know go outdoors there, but outdoors is really nice, so that's not bad. And um, I'm on service a month a year. I have a lot more administrative meetings than I did when I was in Cleveland. A lot more one to ones. They're all Zoom because we're still in the midst of of COVID, but we're starting to see, see some folks actually face-to-face. Um, I have been restarting my research career and continuing some of the projects I was working on in Cleveland. And I think that's the, honestly, the hardest part. I love the administrative aspects. I love meeting with people. Um, I love, you know, recruiting faculty. That stuff I think is all really, really fun. Uh, but you do hit a reset button on your research career when you move institutions. And that, that reset button can be as long as two or three years. So I'm kind of working through that, um, but also working on trying to build the careers of a whole new set of people, which is super fun. David, what's a day in the life of Dr. Steenman? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of um, video conferences. Uh, I, I, that's definitely a big part of, of what we do. Um, you know, we're, we're now working hybrid, it's a program called Choice with Responsibility. You know, you can either work in the office or at home, wherever you, you get your best work done. Um, and those video conferences are really varied. Some of them are um, actual governance bodies where, you know, we're, we're making a decision about whether to move a molecule or a program forward. A lot of them, though, are more strategic discussions. Um, you know, where where is this uh, molecule going to fit uh, in the hematology uh, and heme malignancy field? Where um, do we see the late stage development of it going? Do we need to acquire this company or that company or in license a molecule? Do we need to shut something down that is not lived up to expectations? Because the majority of what we developed uh, doesn't live up to expectations. So uh, that's a lot of what I do. And then, you know, background reading, uh, things people send me, documents, um, you know, protocol amendments. Uh, right now, it's actually a lot of ash abstracts, um, you know, reviewing just to make sure the content uh, makes sense about our, our different programs. I miss ash, I have to say. One of the hard things has been um, not you know, I, I did a lot with the American Society of Hematology and have a lot of good friends there. And Mikhail's been very heavily involved with them as well in various, especially various communications, editorial, educational roles over the years. And um, for various reasons, uh, you know, conflict of interest, perceptions limit what you can do. And so, yeah, I'm still on a couple of committees, but that's about it. And I, I miss those guys. 
So my last question is now, both of you have been in your respective roles for over six months, a little bit over six months, right? Like December, 2020, something like that. So anything that surprised you or shocked you that you did not expect that was not so good and something <laughs> shocked you and surprised you that was actually very good? Don't worry, you both will retain your employment. Nobody listens to my show anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we listen to it. We're not nobody. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Guess we know where we stand, David. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, the, the six months mark sometimes, I mean, I always tell, I've always told my fellows, and it, it is so difficult to know everything in an interview, even about the culture of an environment. I mean, everything, I mean, I mean what are you gonna do? I mean, you just do your best assessment. And then once you're immersed in the environment, you start knowing more. So what surprised you that you didn't expect, whether it's good, bad, or whatever it is? Mikael, you wanna go first? Yeah, it's a very fair question. I already alluded to the commute, um, not loving it, uh, but trying to be proactive. And, you know, we are architects of our own destiny. So I'm trying to, um, be good about setting up meetings while I'm in the car coming from home or going back to home. Um, I love the culture here, both of the university, Sylvester and Miami, and that's what drew me. Um, so that was not a surprise about what a great culture it is. What I didn't realize is how really, really good the people are clinically and administratively. They really care about patients. They're willing to change. They're willing to do things. They, I have an administrative team where I literally have to beg them to go home at night because they are staying until eight or nine o'clock because they care that much about doing a good job. That really blew me away. And, and I, did, yeah, I would not have, have known that from the interview. Um, I'm picking up Spanish. It's still um, south of terrible, but you know, little by little. I'm getting there. I have a whole, but what's what's actually preventing me from learning Spanish better is that I'm surrounded by people who are bilingual. So they always jump in when they see me fumbling through something. <laughs> <laughs> um, all that stuff has been just off the charts wonderful. It's been a more, I think, progressive environment than I was used to about um, the ability to work from home or at work and being adults about it. Uh, and that's actually been really great. David, anything that surprised you? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've been really impressed by is just the the high quality of the science and the um, the people that I work with really, really uh, care. They really, really want to make things better for patients and um, and you know work very, very hard to do so. Um, I'm also impressed by sort of you know how how quickly things move compared to, to, to what I'm used to. Um, the timescales are just different because there's dollars at stake and, and big dollars. I think maybe it, it wasn't a surprise, but I, I sort of had this naive view that um, being in focus with a focus on early drug development and being in Cambridge rather than at the corporate headquarters that I'd be somewhat insulated from the commercial realities. But at the end of the day, it is a business. And, you know, you always, the, the, you always have to be thinking about uh, return on investment and, you know, th it those is, sorts it of is things. It is a business everywhere. for Mikhail as well. Trust me, if he has, I will. If, if he has, if he has fewer number of patients coming to the division of hematology, he's going to hear it. 
Trust me. <laughs> I, I, the, that's part of the irony is I actually probably talk about money less now, far less than I did um, <laughs> than I did where I was before. It it's is crazy. always the case. Uh, now, Mikael wrote a beautiful piece in the Journal of Clinical Oncology on his transition called Transplant. And uh, I felt bad for you when you were going into that uh, uh, rental apartment and you had to go to a hotel. It was very nice. So I encourage all listeners to read it. Um, David, are you going to write a similar piece about your experience? I, I wish Mikhail had told me we could have had parallel pieces. Uh, and, and his apartment was actually really pretty, pretty nice. So, you know, I, I went down and visited him during that transition. It was, he was in a good setup. Yeah, at some point, I'll, I'll have to write something. I, you know, I definitely have to think about what I, what I can say and what I want to say. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, at some point. Anything I should have asked you guys that I forgot to ask you? I mean, I, I think we tried to cover everything, but I, I, you know, I may have forgotten something. Mikael, any last words that you want to say? Maybe I've forgotten to uh, cover. I think if you were to ask me what's the hardest part about this transition, um, you know, your timing and uh, the timing of a place where you're going may not perfectly align. It was pretty close for me. So I did have to spend six months um, away from my family and uh, traveling back and forth every couple of weeks, I would go to them, they would come to me. And that is really, really hard. And I, I don't want anyone to have any delusions about that. You get lonely. And it was like a godsend when David came to visit me because I had, you know, something to do with such a good friend over the weekend. That's fine. Um, but, but, but truly, how, how about saying me. goodbye to your patients? So that's the second half of it. So but some of it is that you get lonely, you're, you're away from your family, you're, you don't have the same friend network. The second part is saying goodbye to your patients and that was brutal. Um, and the administrators where you, you are leaving aren't necessarily sensitive to that. So if you can take control of that process as early as possible, do it. Um, because otherwise your patients are gonna get a form letter before you've had the, the chance to tell them and that, that is really hurtful to them. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. I forgot uh, to ask you. The yeah, I, I think definitely I'll say two things. And thank you again for having me. It's It's been an honor to be on this, particularly with, with Mikhail, with such a good friend. You know, I struggled a lot this year, I think, with my identity. You know, what is a physician who doesn't see patients anymore? Um, I would have actually liked to have kept a clinic. The company would have supported that. But um, there's new conflict of interest rules that um, uh, don't allow that. So, so that was actually really hard saying goodbye to patients, some of whom I'd care for, you know, for more than 10 years. Um, and, you know, now I have MD behind my name and, you know, I do doctorish things, but I don't see patients. And that's, that's been a hard thing to, to, um, to, to, to sort of get my, my mind around. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that at the beginning of your career, you never know what twists and turns and, you know, what, what opportunities are going to present themselves. If, if you'd asked me in 2002, when I was finishing fellowship at Mayo Clinic, what was the most likely thing I'd be doing in 2020? It would have been, you know, probably still at Mayo Clinic, uh, seeing patients and doing research and having come to Boston and then making this transition, you know, the life plays out in unexpected ways sometimes. Yeah. Uh, stay flexible, stay agile and jump on the opportunity yeah. if it feels right. Right.
Absolutely. It's a beautiful way to end. Folks, this was really wonderful. I, I We could talk for hours, honestly, but uh, we can't right now because A, uh, Mikael, I think it is 6.15 your time right now on a Sunday afternoon, so you need to go to the beach. There's like a margarita waiting for you with a small... <laughs> while David and I will go back and read more papers and work. That's right. <laughs> yes, thank you. As, as, as we said before we started recording, you come to Miami either because you're hip or you have problems with your hip. <laughs> thank you so much Good All to right. see you. thank you guys it was great seeing you okay thank you very much for listening to this podcast and as a reminder you could watch all of the podcast episodes on my youtube channel Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support and please let me know how I'm doing. You can do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or you can send me an email to shadinabhanoo at outlook.com or visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You can message me through there and check out all of the podcast episodes as well as watch all of the videos that we have on the website. You know, I hope you've enjoyed this last podcast episode because really it is, you know, when, when you go into medicine, you just don't expect you're going to do anything but seeing patients. But you have to stay flexible. You have to stay agile. You have to be open-minded to a lot of opportunities that could come your way. And some of these opportunities could be going to a different institution. Another opportunity could be going to industry. And I hope that this podcast has has highlighted some of these opportunities as well as the pluses and minuses of changing careers midway. So, um, you know, uh, again, please subscribe to the show, uh, rate the show, write a brief review. And if you check it on YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, hit the like button if you may. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Alexander Denhager. It's way better to be physically exhausted from work that matters than to be spiritually exhausted from work that does not matter. Until next time, take care.